Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Tetra Hearing. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where the host and guests discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience as a field, and to share our members' stories. Welcome back, folks, on this new episode of the Turkey Call All Access podcast. We sit down with Dr. Shortspur, Brett Collier. He's in from LSU, and with turkey seasons underway, what a great time to talk about freak turkeys, turkey oddities, and much more. That's right. We're going to talk about all those weird colored birds, crazy beards, multiple spurt, all of it, uh, and then a little bit more of what the good doctor's doing down there in LSU for new hunters. We're going to do all of that in 90 seconds. Let's go. Hey, guys. This is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring, we head to the woods chasing turkeys, and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us, and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend, if you're a spring turkey hunter, spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. Nomad is proud to be a supporting sponsor of the National Wild Turkey Federation and their podcast hosted by my longtime buddy, Fred Bird. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Yeehaw. <clears throat> Welcome in, everybody. We are back. It is April. Seasons are kicking off all around the country, especially this coming weekend, uh, Easter weekend and beyond. And with that, I wanted to bring back the good doctor, Dr. Brett Collier out of LSU and uh, chop it up about turkey oddities and you know, a way to identify a lot of a lot of good studies in science, old science at this point when I, I air finger quote old because it's a couple of decades old. But it recently in the turkey community, the understanding of dominant toms, dominant breeding and breeding habits. And maybe the good doctor will be able to enlighten us on how to identify that dominant tom. So when you're out on the field, uh, maybe you don't pull the trigger on one that you can identify. And as we're looking at population declines in part of the country, and this has been a theme uh, on this program, you know, just trying to find solves and what can we do in the community and what can we do as turkey hunters that own some of that process um, and, and contribute to, to turkey research. So welcome back, hey, Dr. Bro, Collier. Good to see today. you, Brett. Yeah. Good to see you again. We're commenting on the relative quality of uh, our offices and i really need to up my game it looks like so, uh, but we can, we don't need to go back down that road with no. the uh, with the listers so indeed 
Most of them uh, have heard my side of the story, but I'll let yours be, and we can just get we can get to it. That's <laughs> a good idea. How about how about this? I can do it in two words. Um, I lost, and we'll just do that. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Well, man, as I just said on the intro, uh, turkey oddities, freak turkeys, things like that. And I brought this up, and I reached out because inevitably, at the beginning of every turkey season, especially on social, we see. Um, different looking birds, different features, you know, extra spurs, extra beards, different colors. I'm big on language. I think language is important. So when I hear terms of color phase this or color phase that, I cringe a bit knowing that that's not correct. And I don't want to be correcty correctorson, but I want the information to be out there. So people, you know, when they are posting that, you know, you're doing so in an educated sort of way and we're educating our our audience as well as those who are consuming it uh, outside of our community. Right. There's a there's an importance with that. And language helps tell our story. So, you know, right away, the color phases. Let's let's get rid of that, because I've always maintained it's not a phase. The bird's not going through a, a chic uh, mood. They're not going to change from a cinnamon bird back to a, an eastern looking bird. They don't get to change their clothes. They are what they are forever. Expound on that, please, sir. Yeah, well, you know, and I I, I see the pictures up on social media as well as, as everybody does. And um, I think it's good to give the, the listener kind of a, a broader view of this. So um, whenever turkeys were, you know, and I'll use Osceola as a good example. All right. Um, you know, genetically, an Osceola is equivalent to an Eastern. Every study that's ever been done ever looking at genetics, it says that an Osceola and an Eastern are the exact same bird. They're, they're genetically identical. Right. Um, but but everybody knows that there are different. Uh, you will see different coloration a different color variance, I'll call it for right now, with a, between, say, an Osceola and an Eastern. And, and what people have to remember is the original um, kind of separations, for lack of a better word, designations of these subspecies uh, between our Easterns and our Osceolas, our Easterns, Rios, Merriams, um, you know, Goulds, uh, the, the original designations were almost always based on morphological characteristics because they were done at a time when genetics wasn't a thing. Mm. You know, they were done 100, 120 years ago, longer than that even. Guy was going, you know, riding across the prairie and said, hey, that bird looks kind of like it's between a Merriam's and an Eastern, so we're going to call it intermediate, mm. intermediate, right, for a Rio. Um, so, so people have to understand that generally speaking, Turkeys were uh, separated into the subspecies based on kind of how they look, morphological characteristics. I would say that the Eastern being the most ubiquitous, everybody generally knows what an Eastern looks like, right? Um, Osceolas tend to be a little bit darker, um, sometimes a lot darker, you right. know, but, but that tends to be their thing. Rios tend to lighten up and have, you know, lighter tips. Uh, um, on the feathers, you know, and everybody knows about Maria, you know, Goulds look blue sometimes, which is super cool. And then the Mariams have the white on them. And, and, you know, so the original setup was that morphological variation is what kind of was used to define different subspecies. Now we see all kinds of, and I say all kinds, okay, relative to the total number of turkeys shot, we're probably talking 30, maybe 50 a year that look weird. Right. Um, the most common bird that folks get pictures of are uh, what I'd call uh, the, the kind of smoke phase, right? They're kind of grayed out. Um, I've seen them called uh, piebald, mm -hmm. which is not 
going back to we're using words correctly right. it's not really correct highball gen, generally means like a horse that's black and white right. um you know and, and it's been applied to deer that have white on them and you know white and brown and that kind of stuff but um but you'll see your smoke based birds and these are birds where you know the the pigments basically just didn't come in now for, for everybody out there so you guys know Generally speaking, there's a lot of research on bird feathers and, and what makes birds particular colors. And there's all kinds of really deep science on looking at why a little itty bitty brown job, you know, little LBJs, little brown birds that are out there might have a little bit of variation here and there. Um, we don't have any of that information for turkeys at all. Just it just it doesn't exist. Like, I don't study it. I don't know that anybody does study it. Um, it might exist generally for galliforms, but we don't go and you know take samples from all these weird oddity looking birds and then try and figure out why they're that color. Because I mean, there's two reasons. One, they're usually dead when we sure. see them, yeah, right? Right. Um, and the, the second reason is is everything that we've learned doesn't mean to. They don't really act any different than a regular turkey right they still breed they still have I mean, we've had smoke you know females that have nested <clears throat> successfully you know so so they're just turkeys um so so a smoke is generally the one that most people will will see right um then you start getting into the real weird ones that are out there um you know you'll see bourbons you know that, that yep. they have a lot of red in them um, you'll see ones that, uh, have a real heavy black band and then white tips and, uh, they've got, you know, weird white and black feathers. And, um, those probably, and we see a lot of those on social media at this time of year, those are probably, uh, somehow back crossed into Narragansetts, which mm -hmm. are domestics, which came from wild turkeys. Um, and then you'll see these, I saw a really strange one the other day. I can't remember what I saw it on, um, but it was black and red mm. and all kinds of weird colors on it. And, and all I can say is its parents probably spent some time on the farm, right? right, right, um, right. You know, and then occasionally the, the funny thing is occasionally, and I haven't figured this one out um, and I don't think anybody has, but, uh, and maybe somebody out there is smarter than me, but occasionally you'll see one that um, is albino, right? Or is right. pure white. But the, the weird thing is, is that those pure white birds always have a black beard. Right, right. And and if they were true albinism, if it was truly albinism, you know, if they were actually like true, because if you look at a human being being, you know, that's truly a true albino, you know, the, their eyes are washed out. Their their hair is blonde, mm, almost white. Right. Um, if they're African-American, their skin is significantly lighter. Their hair has a little bit of a red tinge to it. Um, but but. For some odd reason in turkeys, you see a lot of white turkeys shot with black beards. Right. That to me says that's not true. Uh, that's not a true albino. That's a breeding uh, back cross random genetic coin flip that just happened to turn that bird out. Um, here's what we do know. The presence, or I say no, this is my opinion because nobody studies this stuff. The presence of these birds in native populations doesn't really have an impact. Um, the, they're not better or worse breeders. They're probably dying faster because they're brightly colored. I mean, uh, you know, especially if they're a female, um, you know, a, a, a white bird sitting on a nest and a brown bird sitting on a nest. If something's a sight predator, it's going to eat the white one, right? Sure. Um, you know, but we, we don't know other than it's some sort of weird genetic thing, what causes these oddities. Um, and 
I wish I could say that it was more interesting than it really is, you know, Fred. And <laughs> we I, make I it interesting. Mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see it pop up yeah. online, and it's neat to see the pictures that people get. And you know, I mean, I have a couple of buddies that send me photos every once in a while that they see on social media because they're much more active. Like, like right now is the busy season, right? right. Like, I mean, we're tracking birds. We're just busy, but um, you know, most of these birds. There's some weird deleterious allele thing that it's floating around out there and and shoot them, don't shoot them. It's it's probably not having any impact in the in the larger scheme of things. Yeah. Now, that said, um, the morphology, the kind of the, the 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 gross morphology, the way these birds look, right? Their external care, their external characteristics has been used, as I said, to historically define where birds came from. And you know, you'll get into some states. Uh, you know, Texas is an example, basically anything in the Great Plains, right? Where you start to get that, the you do get some Rio Eastern integration. Uh, in some places, you also get it between Rios and Marions in a couple mm-hmm. of locations and whatnot. You get that integration, and the birds will start throwing um, characteristics that look more or less one way or the other. Yeah. Um, but, but at the end of the day, you know, sometimes you're going to have Easterns that are light feathers and sometimes you're going to have Rios that are really dark. And every once in a while you're going to get a bird in Georgia that looks like it's from Southern Florida and whatnot. And and it's just, it's just, it's just variation within the species. And, and that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I've up here in in the Northeast, I've taken Easterns uh, that, that have the coloration in their fans anyway, are very Rio-ish. My son uh, took a bird last year that had, you know, basically looked like the wings of a Osceola. I mean, they were black as black could be. I was like, wow, look at that there. And, and we're nowhere close to it. Right. The reason I bring oh, up wow. the, the, I bring up the oddities and stuff, especially is like, and this is kind of a jacked up way to put it, but like, I want to make sure someone's not killing someone's pet, right? <laughs> Some of these birds are like right out of the barn and they hook up, right? They do hook up with yes. wild populations. And hell, I've seen bantam roosters walking with flocks of turkeys in, in the in the woods. There's no farm around, but that rooster just, I'm part of your crew now. I would hate for someone, you know, little Johnny's prized uh, 4-H turkey uh, to come come in in the spring. And <laughs> that's it. Look at this smoke phase I got. Nah, bud. That's that's a 4-H project from down the road a couple of miles. It, it, you know, it, it happens. Um, you get a lot of bourbons, you know, the red, you, know, yeah. you get a lot of reds that that show up. And, and you know, especially as juvenile males, as, as you know, one-year-old males, they they escape or whatever. And they show up later. Uh, Narragansett's are another one. Um, that that tend to show up uh, fairly regularly, and then they're really noticeable. Like if if someone shoots Narragansett and I get asked about it, and I say that sure looks like a farm bird, <laughs> and it's not because I'm criticizing. No, right, it's their harvest. Right? These birds have been living out in the wild. I mean, it's not like somebody went in the backyard and shot it. Right? Yeah. I, I get that, but if they hook up, you know, as a Jake, and they're running around with the flock, and they get harvested, I mean, you can they morphologically look exactly the same as any one of them you can Google, yeah. right? Um, you know, you do get some weird ones though. You know, I've seen some that have had, uh, you know, the, the dark wings and the light backs. And, you know, every once in a while you'll see, a, uh, I've seen a couple of male Rios that have been smoke phase that literally look like they're almost white, right? Um, you know, but but generally speaking, I suspect that a lot of these birds are coming from somebody's property and integrating in with a wild flock not being born into a wild flock um because 
and I hate to say this, I never see them as Jake's. No. And you my don't. people, you know, when they're in the woods, we never see them as Jake's. You never see a lot of juvenile males that just look wonky. Maybe there's a few pictures out there. I'm sure there are, right? But it's not like we're watching them grow up. And we watch, I mean, between all the research we got going on, we watch a lot of turkeys yeah. grow up. Yeah. So, you know, and I can't, you know, I was thinking and I looked back at we banded almost 3,500 birds in Texas. Wow. Um, you know, start on a project, a banding project that we just finished up. And we never had one that was wonky. And we were banded all over the state. Luck of the draw? I don't know. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, but there's there's some odd ones out there. I still haven't figured out the Blackbeard thing, though, on on the all white birds. I cannot figure out why that. Yeah, one. right. So. You know, it's and that's it's, what I've been looking. I've been researching. It's one of those things you get in the world, the rabbit hole, like a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, you know, you're, you're finished working, you're drinking a beer, and just going through all the old papers on what makes feathers different colors, trying to figure it out. So it's a good point to bring up because I think recently, as last week, um, I think you probably contributed to it in some way. But Doc Chamberlain posted for his Turkey Tuesday about you know airfinger coat beard rot. Um, yes. We all know. <clears throat> us that are in the know know that that's not a thing. Beard rot doesn't exist. It's the melanin deficiency in the beard that, you know, so theorizing here, me in the muggle realm, um, if there was a true melanin deficiency that causes albinism, would, would it be safe to hypothesize that you wouldn't have a beard or if you did, it would probably break off because it would be in that, that way. Right. Yes. Um, you know, my general thought is that you're correct. If if you had something, any not just albinism, anything that that adjusts or changes the content, you know, the melanin content within the feather structure, anything right. um, should, in theory, trickle through to you know the beard. Is this a um, feather? But but it doesn't. Right. I, I mean, it, it's it, weird. It, I, mean, I mean, I've never, and I looked. I haven't seen a picture of a white beard yet. Right. I don't think one would you know? exist because I think it I mean, would fall maybe, off. Maybe a little bit right here, right? <laughs> yeah. On me, but yeah. but but you know, so so that's kind of a weird thing to think about. Um, and you know, uh, and since you contacted me, you know, I was I you know I was sitting around pecking away at it, and, and there's just no evidence of a lot of this stuff. And I and I hate to be the the guy that says this, but you know, turkey biologists study things myself and others. We study things that we think are going to help conserve and manage. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not a bird is white doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Right. Like sure. I, I, that's that that bird, that one or three or 30 of the year are irrelevant relative to the bigger kind of picture. So we don't put a lot of focus on it because there's not a lot of impact that it has at the population level. Um, and as such, there hasn't been as much science done on it. Um, you know, so most of the work that I've you know been reading about has been in the more avian literature, you know, yeah. with the. Smaller birds, egrets, cranes, that kind of stuff. When when folks are posting them, and it always gets termed once in a lifetime bird, and I think it's it's a <clears throat> it's a combination of more hunters on the landscape, plus social media and, and the ability to have a, a camera in your pocket at all times. I think it's probably more of a megaphone um, idea that it's more exaggerated than it used to be. You just didn't hear about it, or it was local, right? If a white bird or some different funny looking bird got shot, it was kept in that community literally that community there you know but now we're our, we have live in a big world but it's made smaller by social media we get to see more so <clears throat> have they always been there are they really as rare as we think and then you know are you more surprised to see these birds reach a level of maturity because of their deficiency right by nature they should all get gobbled up because they stand out in a crowd amongst their you know their peer group whatever is going to eat them should 
knock them off before they even get to a level of maturity. I'm often surprised to see, you know, like you said, a black beard on a white bird. Like, how did he Mm -hmm. how did he get there? (laughs) Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm a big believer that every bird that that I get a chance to harvest, uh, get the opportunity to to harvest is a once in a lifetime bird. Right. Everyone doesn't matter to me. Um, You know, I'm a little slow with my start on season this year. Um, You know, I'm I'm a big proponent of the, you know, hunt them late so they can mate. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, but I'm going to start my season in Texas here in a couple of weeks. It'll be fun. Um, so to your, to your thought, um, what's interesting is you don't see a lot of females that show right. these characteristics. And, and, and I want to put this in context. Um, males don't die unless males get shot. Sorry, my dog was barking in the room. Unless males get shot, males really don't die. They travel around in groups. They they look at each other. They try to make sure they don't get eaten. And then generally speaking, most males live outside of hunting season. Uh, 90%. Okay. Mm. So most of all, I mean, I think it was Bill Healy that said it. And if not, I've said it. Mike said it. Everybody who studies turkeys has said, you know, most males die to a three-inch load. Okay. <laughs> Somebody shooting them in the head. Um, that, that's it. That's the number one mortality source for males. So for females, it's totally different. For females, everything eats them, especially during the nesting period. What's weird is you very rarely see social media pictures of weird looking females. No. Except the bearded because hands, those, right? That's the only thing. Yeah, bearded, bearded hands not weird to me. That's mm-hmm. just that happens. Brian Wakeling right. had done some work on <clears throat> oh, Brian's gonna yell at me, but he had done some work back uh 20 or 25 years ago and said that almost 15% of the Merriams that they were tracking around had beards. Yeah. Right. So bearded hens, that's pretty cool. Yeah. They've been there around. But when you think about these, these oddities, it's almost always oddities of males that got shot because that's the only time we could see them. Sure. Right. But with females, they're out there going to your question on not surviving. They're out there trying to nest and reproduce and all of that kind of stuff. And they're dying. If if they exist, they're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would if I was a betting man, I'd say a tenth of one percent of birds, of of native birds will throw some sort of a weird. And I'm totally making that number up, by the way. All right, that's that's my scientific wild ass guess. We call them swags. Um, <laughs> is is that a tenth of one percent of birds are going to show any characteristic that's deviant from normal? And and the only reason I say a tenth of one percent is that it's got to be really really small, or we'd be seeing them all yeah. the time. You know, um, there are some areas where you'll see uh, smoke phase birds yep. pretty regularly. Yeah. You know, there there are some regions where that that sort of you know genetic uh, pop up just seems to occur every year. Um, and there, there's, I mean, there's one down the road from the house here right now that I see about every three days. Um, but, uh, you know, there's other areas that you'll never see them, you know, like we've never, um, our place in Illinois where I grew up, I've never seen one. I'm yeah. sure they exist, you know, so, but there's other places, you know, I can remember some ranches in, in Texas with Rio's where every year, just a couple more smoke bays would pop up in the traps every single year. So, um, I don't think they're that uh that prevalent hmm. i think that you're right i think social social media has you know made it more uh, available for everybody yeah. Yeah. to to see as opposed to you you know showing it off at a local gas station where you stop and get you know a candy bar and a coke after your right. hunt you know and they put a picture up in the you know the 
I don't know, the, the, the Chelsea update, <laughs> um, you know, and, and now it gets put out on social media and gets it gets manifested across a bunch of channels. And so more people have the opportunity to see it. And that tends to make it look like it's happening more than it really is. Yeah. yeah. And when you talk about the smoke phase, I that thinking back on my career, at least, you know, in social and, and digital content creation, like that's the only one I ever see in the females really that, you know, springs up yeah. aside from beards. But that's that smoke phase, if you will. Um, hen, and that's the only oddity I've seen. And then, so, so we'll go into the other ones, yeah. um, and that have been recently covered, you know, Mohawks. I see that I've, <laughs> I've only primarily seen them myself, uh, in females, but then recently, um, there, there was a, someone just killed a Tom on a youth weekend. I think in the last week that had one hell of a feathery puff on its head. Talk yeah. about the, the Mohawk birds, um, if you will, for a little bit and how that comes. Yeah. About. Just just briefly, I mean, all, all that is is feathers growing, right? No. It's just it's just I don't even know if it's abnormal feather growth, if that makes any sense. I, I would equate it to, you know, some some men go bald. OK, <laughs> Brett Collier is bald. Um, there's no rhyme or reason why. I mean, I, I like to tell my wife that I'm just too loaded with testosterone. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, so I think that this is just one of those random things where a bird just happens to have a little bit of abnormal feather growth on the top of its head. And, uh, you know, you're about the mossy heads and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's cool. Yeah. It's neat to take a picture of it. But from a population perspective, does nothing. Um, it's it's nothing. We, I mean, I ignore it. I think everybody ignores it. It's neat to see. Right. But it's not making them, you know. It's it's not making it more attractive to the ladies. Yeah, yeah. I guess is what I would I would look at. Um, you know, uh, that's 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 snoods. The the snood. Right. Is the, that's that's the good word there from uh, the work that was done in Mississippi back in the nineties. Um, I think I sent you some of those papers, didn't I? Or the you did. And we're gonna read. yeah. We're gonna get into that once I work down oh, cool. the the body yeah, of a no, bird no. here and their weirdness. So, but so we don't know. And I'll be honest with you, I, nobody knows nobody that I, that I know yeah. of. Um, knows why we randomly get some birds that have a little bit of a mohawk or a little bit extra feathers on their head. Yeah. We just, we don't know. We don't study it. We don't pay a lot of attention to it. And it falls in the bucket of interesting, but less important than mother things. For sure. most of hey guys, this is Aaron with the hunting public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us, and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend, if you're a spring turkey hunter, spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. Nomad is proud to be a supporting sponsor of the National Wild Turkey Federation and their podcast hosted by my longtime buddy, Fred Bird. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. 
the Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitats, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. So in the animal world, you know, at kind of a, at large, um, the oddities, the, the, the animals or bird species that have typically something <clears throat> different about them, they get picked on and bullied literally to death or they get eaten. Right. But in this in case, some cases, yeah. in this case, that doesn't seem to happen, you know, with, with turkeys or, or I guess other species of birds, but focusing on the turkey talk here mm -hmm. that it doesn't like, um, you know, in their peer group, it doesn't make them stand out so much that it's a detriment to their, their well-being and their health. They just, it just, they just go on, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and no, you're right. I mean, a lot, I mean, anybody who's ever hunted turkeys and, and harvested a bird when it was part of a group of birds, you know, especially if there's any jockeying going on for, you know, social status, as soon as that bird gets knocked over, what happens, right? Everybody runs over and starts beating the crap That's out right. of it until the hunter stands up, right? Well, you know, these things aren't as apparent as that. Mm. And, and I don't know, and I can't even begin to fathom, but I, I, I don't know the turkeys would even notice them. Right. Yeah. It's not like a physical injury or, or, you know, something like that. That's really manifests itself out to where, you know, they try and run you off. Um, you know, I think about like the old lions getting run right, off and exactly. that kind of thing, you know? So it's not, it's not anything like that. I think it's just, Brett looks different. That's it. But he still hangs out and everything. So we don't we don't worry about it. We'll all fight together, you know, fight in the spring some and, and be done with it. Um, I don't think that there's I mean, <laughs> evolution as as a broader concept is based on these weird mutations sure. that cause that cause birds, mammals, whatever to be more fit, you know, so whatever the mutation is. It, it causes them to be able to reproduce more, breed faster, breed stronger, have more babies, live better, whatever it is, right? Um, we don't generally look at stuff like that for turkeys mm. as, as a general rule um, because there's so little variation between birds, right? Yeah. I mean, a, a, a male looks like a male, a female looks like a female. There's, you know, the 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 smallest little things are really hard to measure and really hard to find out. And we don't even know if we're measuring the right thing too. Yeah. So, so it's just really us putting a value system in place on these birds, yeah. just superficially. It's really not affecting functionality, uh, yes. territory, uh, pecking order at all. Like, they just are. I mean, they're more like us, I think, and in a way uh, than other animals. Like, hey, dude, it's just you are who you are, and, and we're gonna hang if we like you. We like you. Otherwise, you're out, and we just check your ass. I, I had a oh yeah, I had a discussion with one guy who said that uh, we should remove all the bearded hens. Every so every time you saw a hen with a beard, did we caught one? We should kill it. Why? Because because they don't breed. Says who? That's that that, that which is and, and you know, he it wasn't foolish. He just wasn't informed, yeah. right? So I showed him pictures and data of here are bearded hens that we've caught, and here are the pictures of their nests, and here they are with their poles. Yeah, because because his assumption was um, that they were uh, somewhere in the reproductive gray area. Um, I don't want to use the word like hermaphroditic. That's where I was going was, in my that head. That was his assumption. Right, right. right? Is that, that is that they were kind of male and kind of female and therefore they didn't make babies and they were in the way. 
Yeah. And once we, I talked to them, I mean, that's fine. And, you know, once I showed them information, like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that you're right. I think that it's kind of like, eh, you know, there's, there's Brett. He's okay right now. Maybe he'll annoy us tomorrow, but we're going to not mess with him. And <laughs> it doesn't really matter what he looks like. I mean, Lord knows if, if everything went on looks, I'd be just screwed. So, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think that, I mean, we've all seen a lot of turkeys. I, I don't know what the mechanism is that a turkey uses to identify another individual. I assume that it works like us because no. probably all humans look the same to turkeys. Sure. But we all look different to each other. Right. I'm assuming that they have things that they key on. I have no idea what those might be. No. Maybe there's its feather structure or maybe it's <clears> something <throat> in the UV range that they're able to see that we don't. And I don't know. So. Sidebar, and I, I'm just yeah. interested because you brought it up, and this is where my ma imaginative head goes. With the advent of AI and and stuff like in the last two months coming on strong, do you think there will ever be? I can't say it that way because that's too ambiguous. Uh, too ambiguous. Do you think in the near future, like next five to ten years, mm -hmm. you and your professional will be able to use AI, hook it up to a bird, and read its mind? Because that 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 technology exists now with human beings. It'd be kind of hard to hold the bird still. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Put a little turkey AI cap right on their little fleshy yeah, heads. Yeah, I mean. Would you want to know? Let's just, let, uh, I, uh, let's just say I'll be glad when I'm retired. And don't have to answer <laughs> questions like this one. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just, this is where no, my no, imagination no. It's, goes. It's an interesting question because the, the, Use of artificial intelligence. The, the problem, let me back up. So the problem with artificial intelligence is that it's artificial because it can't learn unless information is available. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I'm not an expert in this, so nobody yell at me. I'm a turkey yeah. college, right? Um, but, but it, you know, it, whenever you say, hey, chat GP or whatever it is that the students are all messing around with right now, trying to get them to write their homework with it and everything. <laughs> but please help me write this code. It relies on being able to go out and suck in information yeah. from everywhere else. Um, I don't know how you could not to get overly scientific parameterize the structure of it to understand what's going on inside a bird's brain because we don't know. There's nothing like, to start from. They, they, there's no there's no foundation on which you could say, okay, this circuit firing at this time means turn left. Mm, yeah. We, we don't know what that is. I mean, maybe it's possible, but definitely not in my lifetime and probably not in my kids. Um, but what I want to know, no, <laughs> no, no. And, and here's why. Here's why. Um, under the North American model of wildlife management, I'm thinking strictly about males here. What, you know, fair chase is one of our, you know, that we live by that, right? And we butt up against the limits of what could be called fair chase mm. every year as a society. And, and I'm not criticizing how anybody hunts. I am by no means the guy who uh, should be making the decisions on what how you hunt or how anybody else hunts or how they choose to pursue their sport, okay? But hyper-realistic decoys, hyper-realistic calls, all the methods that are available, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm. 
do we really do we really need to kill something so bad that we need to know what's going on in its head to yeah. help us? Is kind of where I'm at. It's a great way no, of looking I, at it because I certainly wasn't thinking of it in those terms of like getting the you know the Mel Gibson movie uh, what women want or what what they think. He could like read their mind if you remember that movie. Like I don't want to know. What's I do in remember their, that movie. I don't remember. Nope. <laughs> I don't want to go in their head to get the the. the the thumb, uh, the the what am I trying to say here? I'm spazzing out here. The the advantage over the bird for hunting, I would just be more uh, as just how they work, like you said, uh, how how one tom identifies another tom, and how one hen looks at the group of toms, uh, snoot aside, and says, "Yep, you're my man." And, and that would be super. And look, that would be super cool. But the problem is, there's no way to do that without mm-hmm. the other thing you're being exactly right. Uh, 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 an end result of it, you know. Yeah. And I love hunting turkeys. I mean, I love it. There's, there's nothing I love more than hunting turkeys. Maybe deer hunting is a close second. Yep. But I want it to be a hunt. I yes. want it to be a competition. Yeah. And, you know, as we advance, we've we've done a really good job at making it, I don't want to say less of a competition, but um, skewing the odds a little bit more in our favor sometimes. Yeah. Um, that seems to me like if we had that information, that would really skew the odds in yeah. our favor. <laughs> so one more reason not to engage in AI. So I, I stand firm on my uh, tinfoil hat <laughs> talk, uh, kill AI. I'm not into it. Just a fun yeah. sidebar and rabbit hole to go down. Oh, that's right. <laughs> We've got apparently, I, I don't know. I, so I think I follow like 12 or 15 people on social media, on Instagram, because I'm a loser and I'm old and, <laughs> and, I, and I'm fine with that. Right. And, you know, usually they post the stuff that I want to see. There's apparently uh, a bunch of athletes one of them being at LSU, and I won't say his or her name, but they're very popular on the social media, who's advertising, like holding up a laptop, advertising a AI thing to help you write your homework. Oh, nothing wrong with that, GP. And, uh, as GPA, a huh? professor, I'm like, what the hell are we doing here? So, yeah. Um, no, but but I, I'm I'm with you. I'm not going to put on my tinfoil hat yet. But whenever Skynet happens, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be going to Ouch. the basement and stay in there. That's exactly right. I'm with you. All right, back to freakish turkeys. Then thank you for sure. indulging me. Uh, so let's go down to the beard. Um, we just posted uh, last week a Dr. Tom uh, yep. with Bob Erickson about it was some beard stuff, and specifically there was a. There was a double beard, but it was it was lateral. It wasn't it wasn't up and down. And mm-hmm. that was a function of that bird getting skewered by another bird and literally splitting that bulb yep. um, and creating this. But, you know, the, we talked about, you know, the uh, the 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 local colloquialism or I guess nationwide, the beard rot, um, double beards, uh, multicolored beards. Go into that a little bit. What are you know, people on the landscape when they get to their bird? You know, why do birds have double beards? And again, I can't I got to assume for the audience, not everyone knows everything to the level that you and I understand it. So sure. what causes double uh, multi beards? Uh, what why the discoloration? And then, you know, just some again, more of the oddities on the beards. Yeah. You know, but beards are weird. Like they are the you know, beards and spurs are the, the they're the the antlers of the turkey world. Right. right? That's the easy. You know, the, or the the skull, uh, depending on what you're harvesting. So I see a bear you got in your background mm-hmm. there. You know, they're the, they're the antlers of the skull of the turkey world. So everybody's really interested in them. Um, you know. We don't have a clear view scientifically of what causes multiple beards other than the damage component that causes it to split, right? We don't know 
why they tend to have some will have three, some will have most will have one, some may have two or three. Sometimes the uh, and I'm brain farting on the the p word for the where they start at, but that's so okay. Papilla um, is that the right yes, terminology? That's the right terminology. Yes, we don't know why they they sometimes seem to replicate on their chest. We don't know why. I mean, all females have them, right? Uh-huh. And and generally speaking, most females have a beard. It's just negligible or non-existent, right? You know, just, it exists, but it's non-existent. Um, we don't know why. And because, and it goes back to what I said earlier, it doesn't have any impact, right? Like, it serves no purpose. Serve, but, but here's the, and, and because I don't want to overstep that. It's, I'm not saying that it serves no purpose. I'm saying we've not be able to, been able to detect the purpose it serves. Understood. It could be that um, having, uh, you know, multiple beards is a sign of fitness to females, for instance, mm. just as an example. But there's so, and maybe that increases the male, you know, copulation uh, frequency. But there's so few males that have multiple beards, it's really hard to tease out. Yeah. Right. Um, now, now the melanin thing is easy. Okay. You know, the, in the old days, you know, my dad, my father is going to oh, well, you know, their beards are so long, they're dragging on the ground and they're breaking. Right. 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 Okay. Heard that one. Uh, no, the, I'm, I'm sure they get some damage from occasionally dragging on the ground. I get it, but, um, they're not breaking, you know, that's, that's melanin deficiency. And what's always interesting is it grows, you know, throughout, it grows in the beard and it grows out. The beard breaks off and the beard keeps growing, right? right? Generally speaking, the beard doesn't break off and then just go away. Um, occasionally you'll have some of those. Um, there's been some folks who have said that it's tied to food and <clears throat> timing of reproduction, all this kind of stuff. But uh, generally speaking, we don't know what causes it. Um, it's It doesn't seem to be like, like more or less prevalent in any particular area. You used to hear the old timers talk about how um, – They'd see it a lot in swamp birds, right? Think your 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 Floridas, your Georgias, your Carolinas, your Alabamas, Louisiana, Mississippi. You you'd hear those guys talk about it, and and they'd say, you know, it's obviously water and that kind of stuff. But then up north, they'd say that it was frozen, right? Exactly, and, and it broke off. Yep, right, and that's what caused it to break off. Um, on so, the which is which is really weird, right? Um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting phenomenon that has no good answer to it it's just there's individual variation and it's not it, and i think this goes back to your social media statement it's really not that prevalent mm. i mean at the end of the day i mean i i can't i'm trying to think of all the birds we caught i mean we've tagged hundreds of birds of males the last five or six years i can't think of but about two or three that the folks that send me pictures on that had any sort of beard damage yeah right um Maybe there's something to be said. So, you know, as as organisms age and approach senescence, right, their their physio their physiology changes. Maybe, maybe there's something to be said mm-hmm. that as these individuals get old, their body doesn't process stuff the same, and that can cause the melanin deficiency, perhaps. Um you know, and and there's there's people who will send me an email later and tell me I'm wrong, and that's fine. Um <laughs> You know, uh, but but we generally don't see broke beards and, you know, juvenile males or two year olds that we've banded. Usually it's birds that we've been tracking for mm. a while. But then we've also had birds that we've been tracking for nine years that get shot all of a sudden and their beard is pristine. I mean, it yeah. looks like they just took it out of the box. So, 
you know um beards are uh it's weird because everybody wants to I mean, the beard is the trophy, right? I mean, you know, for for those of us that that hunt, you know, um, beards equate to the skull size, and beards equate yeah. to the you know the the rack, the beards and spurs, right? Um, so so everybody wants to know and to infer as much information from it as possible, yeah. and and oftentimes you just can't. Um, we measured beards for years, oh, for years. Whenever we catch males, we measure them and whatnot, and basically. You catch a juvenile male at somewhere between four and five inches, and whenever you catch an adult, it's somewhere between seven and eleven. Yeah. And we stopped doing it because the uncertainty was so great, but it was deterministic, right? It was almost always went from here to here. Um, and you couldn't learn anything from it. So we 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 stopped maybe five or six years ago measuring beards at all. Um, you know, just to help uh, speed up our processing time. So why, you know? I guess then, <clears throat> if it's not really offering anything other than anecdotal information. Why, when I go to check my bird in or anybody, is that still required information? Why do why do like state agencies still want that information? Do you uh, know? Or well, I don't mean to put you yeah, on the spot know. there either. I'll, but, no, I, I'll oh. tell you exactly. I mean it's the same reason they measure spurs um, is because they think that it gives some indicator of quality okay. of, of age, okay. um, and that's fine. Um, there is there was a paper a long time back that looked at some spurs and age categories and some spur growth and that kind of stuff. And we're working on redoing that now, but, um, and they, they had said that there was kind of a relationship between, you know, Jake and, a, and an adult, but you couldn't, it doesn't keep going out. Right. You know, it's not get a little bit longer every year sort yeah. of thing. Um, agencies, that's what agencies do is they collect data. Right. Right. And some of the data that we collect now on wildlife species that are harvested is is um what's the word I'm looking for here is carryover or long not longevity. Um, we've been doing it a long time, so they won't stop doing it. Just even though yeah, there's no habit, even though there's no good reason to to collect it. You know, huh. um, like measuring the number of points on you know, like I hunt in Illinois on the farm, right? And and what do they tell me to do? They say, you know, you got to measure, you know, around the base of the antler and you got to tell us how many points it has. Hmm. What what information? Yeah, I got to do it on my I wish I had my deer tags laying here. I have no idea why. I have no idea what the relationship between the number of points and age is, or I have no idea what you know beam diameter and age is. And I, I think I would know, but we keep doing it because it's something that we've always done. Um and people and, and plus, you know, I had a and I won't out the gentleman, uh, but I had a gentleman harvest one of my birds in Louisiana opening day. Awesome. I mean, it's great. Whenever my harvested bird or my tagged bird tagged gets bird. harvested, I'm very excited about that, right? Because that's a legal harvest. The gentleman did nothing wrong. Contacted me so we could get the tag back. We can provide the gentleman with all this information um and and all the data and everything like that. And that um relationship is what the state agencies try to perpetuate with their hunting community right yeah so we can continue to to collect good solid information regardless of what it is he asked me if i wanted any of the measurements on it i was like no nah, i don't care <laughs> you already, I, I, we well, measured presumably we, you already we had measured them. it we're good yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah but the reason he asked is because states want to have that information yeah. and they do stuff with it and i suspect that to be honest um I would bet that if you saw trends in like big trends in spur length, declines in spur length, for instance, <clears throat> over a long time period, then that would 
also potentially provide you some information that maybe your your hunting pressure is shifting from adult males to juvenile males, right? Or or beard length being from that seven to eleven into that like four to five range that the hunting pressures transitioned. If you saw that sort of thing, so maybe it's a monitoring, a cautious monitoring thing that they're mm-hmm. trying to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, truth be told, we're still very much. I won't say we're in the infancy. But for the majority of the country, I mean, we've only been hunting birds 50 years and under. Yeah. Like, we're still new kids on the block in this biology game when it comes to yeah. uh, the intangibles and the, and the measure, measurable intangibles of these birds and what they all mean. And then you guys sitting where you you sit and, and deciphering all this. It, it's it's funny, man, because you have, like you said, the local guys who will just spin up their own uh, ideas and then that'll become local lore and law. And then you have oh, a yeah. professional like you at LSU is like, that's a great story, dude. But <laughs> let me let me let me break the ice <laughs> for you. And no, no insult uh, intended. No. And, and, you know, what's funny is I don't think I mean, conservatively, we've really only been hunt we've really only been hunting turkeys about 30 years right okay right just just you know i mean and i mean full-on hunting activity everywhere because yeah because the 70s and 80s were restoration that's right right so so yeah birds were getting shot but it wasn't you know i mean we didn't see the big yeah we didn't see the big pulse in in hunting until the 90s and early 2000s when it just just skyrocketed right um and you know and my job, other than the science stuff, is, you know, um, I, I harassed my friend Mike about, you know, him being a master communicator. Right. But we all, you know, it's, it's a running joke. And, but we all need to be really good at communicating and, and helping. I don't want to say separate fact from fiction, but provide the appropriate facts right. that that help conserve the species. Like, like there's no reason for me to get in an argument with somebody about something that they're 100% sure of, sure. right? Put it out there, say, this is what science says, and then we just walk away. Um, because it, it, it can't, I don't know, I think they call them online trolls, right? Yes. Is that the right word? Yes, indeed. Um, you, you can't get in, and, and you can have a troll at the local gas station coffee shop on opening day of turkey season, or the guy you run into out in the woods and I'm I'm a steward of conservation and I'm a steward of wildlife and the landscape and the critters. So I want everybody to like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because because and I mean that, right? right because right. being an ass to one person, and trust me, I've done that and made that mistake yeah. in my career. So it was a lesson hard learned. But being an ass to one person trickles out. Sure. So you, you want to build that um that ability to talk to people and be like, okay. I, that's interesting. Here's what I can tell you. The science says, yeah. and, and we don't know about it. So as long as I think we stay on that track, it really, it really helps to get information across. I mean, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I laugh about this, but um, there was a time when very few scientists were on social media at all. No. And, and now a bunch of scientists, faculty types like me, are on it, myself included, and and everybody's an expert on everything. Oh, for sure, right? Um, so so there's there's constant discussions that are going on, and I think that give and take between the academic, you know, the research academic, you know, staff, you know, agency staff community and the public is important because we're all working towards the same goal, right? right? We're all working towards conserving whatever species X it is, 
such that we have ample opportunity to pursue them recreationally. I, I would imagine if you're observing it with an open mind and not being so critical and it's a, social is a tool. And I've had this conversation with different personalities um, over the years of doing this program. Uh, and for you, I would imagine if all of a sudden a couple of items are coming up consistently over a couple of seasons, like, oh, there's a trend there. What, let's let's look at that. What What is happening? Where is it happening? It may clue you guys in as, as a scientific community to, like, hey, there's something afoot. Maybe we look into it. Maybe we don't. Maybe it's just it is what it is. Maybe some kid gets out there with his, his master's and is like, I'm going to get my doctorate off of this. And, and we learn something new. So it certainly has its place. And it's it's definitely a resource. It's a well. It's just. You know, how much of that water do you want to drink and in, in, in what time, right? Right. No, absolutely. And, and you'll, I mean, I'll say this. Um, very few things in science are certain. And anybody that says they know the answer is wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I mean that, yeah. right? Because um, we don't. Um, right. You know, and I'll give you a really good example of, of something that crops up in the turkey world all the time. It's, it's fanning and reaping, right? Yep. It does. I mean, everybody wants to know what sort of an impact it has on turkey populations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and and they're asking the right question, but they're not asking it, uh, I don't want to say scientifically enough, right? But they're asking the right question. But the question is, does the use of a particular harvest technique increase the efficiency of the hunter or does it increase the rate of take of the species such that it has a population level impact right okay people will tell you that there are hard answers for those types of things and there's not and, and but but i think it's important for us as the academics to say there's not and right. i'm not saying there's not for reaping and fanning and anything else but for any question like that there's there's not always uh, it's not always black and white like right. I, I think earlier you talked about the uh the dominant the idea of uh social structure and social dominance hierarchies and breeding order and identifying the male mm -hmm. right no clue none i have i have no idea at this time how to identify that particular male do they exist yes do we have we been studying ways to identify them genetically? Yes. Do we think we can do that? I think so. Can I tell a hunter, look for this characteristic and then don't shoot that one? Nah, I can't. You know, there's just there's there's no he's not wearing it. He, he doesn't you know, when he puffs his chest, there's no big ass on it. Yeah, yeah. Right, he's not, he's not super male, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so we can't get to to that level of information or that level of detail, but by providing the information on this topic to the hunting community, they can make good decisions about okay about when they go hunt, the rate at which they take. You know, if if two males come in, do you shoot them both if you've got two tags, or do you wait till they separate and harvest one and leave the other one? Those those are all personal decisions. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to, you know, comment on how anybody chooses to hunt, but those things underlie some of the scientific questions that we end up asking yeah. with with respect to that particular thing you brought up. So, oh, great. so that's, that's how I think about it. No, and I'm glad you you went right into it. And um, that was going to be one of my my closing questions was was about that. So good well, information. Big, I'll tell you guys. Well, I'll tell you right now, the biggest mistake that I ever made was I was hunting Rio's years and years and years ago. And I had three males strutting in front of me, and I thought that two of them were far enough apart. And I shot the I shot the outside one, okay, 
at about 25 yards and I killed the middle one and the outside. Yeah. And I, I didn't hunt for two years after that. I was so mad at myself Sure. because, because my ethics were to not try and double up. Yep. Right. Where, where I was at, I didn't want to do that. And, and I made a mistake and, and whatnot, you know, so there's no science behind that. There's no, there's no justification for why or why not. It's just a decision that I made. So all that we as scientists could do is say, okay, here's what the potential implications of that of that might be. And we move on. Sorry, my dogs are yipping here. No, all good. So, hush dog. It, that's got, it gets so many thoughts <clears throat> running through my head because I will, you know, same way based on the information I know and I'm privy to and conversations I have with with you and your colleagues, you know, it, it, it influences. And especially over the last two years, it's really for me personally changed my approach and some of my my philosophy specifically to turkey hunting and how I look at that resource in my own literally my own backyard and the area I hunt within five miles of my house. We are research, golly days, we're, we're good with turkeys. <laughs> we are rich. We have an abundance. We're also mm -hmm. probably a decade to a decade and a half behind the majority of, of the South and the way where we are up here. You and I have talked about this offline. Yeah. So I don't want to see happen <clears throat> up here is what's happening currently. The future here in the Northeast is happening down South, presumably. I, I have no Absolutely, way to quantify yes. that, but we know things have happened over the decades that have probably influenced uh, population decline. I don't want to see that stuff happen up here. So it's like, hey, if, so getting back to how you just said you present it, you know, it's not coming from mm -hmm. this very heady high ground and, and demeaning and talking down to people like here's some facts. Here's where we're at. Th these are the facts as they stand today in 2023. This science may change in 2027 or 2028 when we get five more years of data and research to, mm -hmm. to bear this out. So it continues or it completely flips the script. Right. But for now, here's what we know. And here's what you can rest your laurels on. Make your decisions from there. Right. Sure. And and and, and, so, and I think you probably said what's most important right there. Um, you know, the South is the, you know, the canary in the coal mine right. for the rest of the United States. Um uh, high densities of birds, historically high, really high density of birds, um, really liberal hunting seasons, hunting very early, um, lots of landscape level change, lots of land fragmentation, lots of habitat loss. You know, I mean, turkeys are private land bird. The maintenance of this species is going to exist on private land. Right? Yeah. So, you, you know, we're we're trying to get out front such that. The, the Northeast, your particular area, you know, and, and even the, you know, the, the plain states are all getting in the game right now. There's work going on in Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there's work going on in Nebraska. Um, I think that there's even work going on uh, North Dakota and South Dakota. Yeah. yeah and, and folks are starting to do stuff. Although turkeys, I mean, once you kind of get to the mountains, turkeys aren't that exciting for people. Um, you know, there's a few pockets, but, you know, but these are getting into elk and things yeah, get really sure. cool. Um, but I think that it, it comes down to our, the approach that scientists could have is that nothing's ever really set in stone. Right. And and the amount of knowledge, that, I mean, so knowledge acquisition is one thing. Um, the rate at which we acquire knowledge now is exponentially faster than it was 30 years ago, whenever uh, Bill Healy, um, you know, Gary Norman, uh, Bill Bill Porter, who passed away a few years ago, um, we're, we're we're doing work, and you know they were they were tracking 
50 or 30 or whatever many birds and get a point every month and, you know, doing survival stuff to where I was talking to one of my students and she, she's got uh, Rachel, one of my master students, she's got 180,000 GPS locations yeah. from this year. Games change. Right. And, and, and so the knowledge accrual is a lot faster, but that means we have to be much more cautious with, what we say, because we don't know if we're going to look at something five years down the road and somebody's going to come back and say, well, you said this in 2023. Now here we are in 2028 and you're saying something different because we've done that. Right. I mean, my, I, you know, Mike and I will tell you about all the thing we thought uh, these hens were doing with their broods and all this stuff. And man, were we wrong? No. Yeah. Oh man, were we wrong? We thought these hens were walking out of the woods and finding where they were going to nest and then going back and getting bread and then going to that nest site. Oh, hell no. They don't even find, they don't even look for that nest site till after they're bred, you know, and that has a lot of implications for land management. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, how big fires should be. Years ago, if you'd asked me a decade ago, I'd have said all fires should be as big and as hot and as used as possible. Now, I want to burn like 400 acres, 300 acre pockets. No. I don't want to burn 3,500 acres. You know, because the birds only use around the edges until it grows back up. So, so yeah, knowledge, you know, knowledge grows. And, and that's one of the benefits about working with all the state agencies in the Southeast, not just me, but all of us that are academics that work together is that we kind of uh, talk to each other. Yeah. And our states stay really engaged. So everybody's kind of on the cusp of what we're learning and what we might need to learn. The cooperation really <clears throat> is phenomenal. And for me, it really stood out in, in Asheville. That was my first experience. Uh, was something like that. And I just I still hearken back to it. I still quote stuff from it because it was just such an eye opening experience. And one, I know I it would be impossible that you create this circus environment if you open it up to the public, because God knows once people figure it out, they would descend on wherever that symposium is going to be in five years. But, so I shouldn't tell them it's going to be in Kansas City year <laughs> after in 2026, I think. <laughs> no, um, I mean, what a just the information that comes out of that and 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 seeing the same passion that that is happening here or at their local chapter level for the NWTF say happens in your classrooms, in your laboratories, in your, in your world of academia, you guys are Turkey hunters. Oh yeah. And this is a, this is part of that storytelling, um, you know, NWTF or outside of NWTF that is so important that connects the dots and allows us as a community to be like, okay, they're not fighting against us or not. There's not, again, put your tinfoil hat on because there's plenty of them out there. Uh, they're not working against us. Like everyone has the same goal. And I mean, when you hear this information and you have conversations like this, it's like, yep, full display. Here it is. There is no BS going on here. It's everyone's working toward with what you got in that, in that moment. The 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 and for the listeners, what what he's talking about is the National Wild Turkey Symposium, um, and and I'll I'll just I'll give a two minute brief thing. Yeah. Basically, what happens is uh, every usually it's about every five years. It changes a little bit depending upon activity, but um, every five years, the wild turkey community. So that is the the state agency biologist. National Wild Turkey Federation, uh, academics like myself, uh, they're studying turkeys uh, all across the United States. We all kind of get together and we have a meeting and and we present the uh, the research, the science that we, we've been doing and that's going on. And we we kind of update. We do a status report 
uh, where we, you know, where uh, NWTF actually surveys all of the the states on kind of what's happening, and then you know they ask a few of the academics to put it together. Uh, Mike Chamberlain and I put with the last one together with Mark Hatfield mm-hmm. um, on the status for every state, and then. We have some invited speakers that come in and talk about turkey science. And and then we have a lot of graduate students, which is the, the I mean, they're the core. Amazing. It's amazing. And a lot of grad students come in, they talk about the science they're doing. And this is the cutting edge stuff, right? This is the, these are the ones that are doing the work on how these hymns are, are where these hens are taking their broods at and, you know, what the genetics of these flocks are and, and, you know, uh, what, what impacts predators, you know, how coyotes move on the landscape have on how turkeys move on the landscape. And I mean, just the really cutting edge stuff. And, and we all sit in a big room and, you know, there's, there's, you know, presentations and discussions and questions and all the state agency people are there. So you've got every state represented generally. And, you know, it's, it's, it's everybody who's got a vested interest in long-term turkey conservation in one place at one time with all the academics stacked on top of yeah. us talking about science. And it really breeds some, some good discussion. And, you know, we publish what's called uh, the symposia, uh, which is basically a compendium of all the science that everybody put together. It's about 400 or so pages of uh, science. Of different research projects and it's it's really exciting it's it's a good time so it is an awesome time and and the they should record it and just play it on a loop at nwtf every day yeah man i'll I'll tell you i mean i I know this past one um this audience is is aware of it because i i think every other episode i find a way to to bring it up (laughs) but it was the first time a a multimedia coverage was available you know between our podcast between having uh staff writers and other people just covering that um and it really tapped into a a, an incredible value and the people you know responded very well to it the the podcast the articles that came out of it a lot of the announcements that that were announced in real time with partnerships and and research dollars being allocated to certain and and again it's all timely because there's a concern right there's a call to action that's been uh, bubbled up again in the turkey community, um, and that is yeah, our and, populations. And, yeah, not to jump on you there, but I, I forgot. You know, there's such a call to action. You led me right into that. Yeah. Is that we usually do it every five years, but there's so much activity going on right now. The next one is only three years away. Right. Actually, right now it's only two and a half years away. Yeah. Right. And and you talk about partnerships, and that's the beauty of our system is that you know our partnerships are between our our state agencies in almost all the states, the National Wild Turkey Federation, our other NGOs, but you also have the Forest Service sending tons of people to this meeting so that they can get the most up-to-date information on what's going on. You know, you've got uh, NRCS coming to this meeting so that they can get the most up-to-date information. All the people that integrate with private land management and public land management are there. You have industry people that show up to this meeting. Because they want to know what's going on so that they can work on, you know, industry forest land. So so it's it's really a it's a really great meeting. And mm-hmm. and like you said, I mean, if turkey hunters could go to it, they'd all be there oh, um, because and it's just basically I mean, it's basically a bunch of science nerds talking turkey science, but it's exciting. But we're all armchair so, science nerds ourselves, because when we have the opportunity to, to consume and digest this information, uh, we're at it and we're banging away on the keyboards. I think what you'd right. have to do is put a no comment clause <laughs> agreement <laughs> when you sign your ticket. Like, yeah, you just can't talk because this will go yeah, for a you, whole you week. Just, just sit there and listen and watch. <laughs> just so. observe and, and, and consume and then write your letters when you get home. <laughs> right. And the, the next one that's coming up is going to be great because there's 
some long-term work in Missouri that's been going on. Right. Um, Michael Byrne, who's a professor at University of Missouri, Fantastic. is doing some really neat stuff. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, and then Nebraska will be a couple of years into their project at that point. So you're going to get some updates on that. Um, you know, obviously, um, Chad uh, up in um, Chad Lehman up in South Dakota has been doing ongoing work for years up there um so there'll be information on that and and all all it's great because all the usual players are going to be there yeah. right so it's, it's just it's just going to be a good group so. it makes having that information makes our community and I, it's for lack of a better term smarter i mean hell i just the mm-hmm. other night uh went to our in new hampshire right now is in its biannual uh rulemaking session so mm-hmm. that means the, the the biologists and the agency are making their recommendations for the next couple of years of what uh laws and take and everything looks like they presented to the commission and it's open for public discourse. And then the commission says, yeah, we're going to bless this, take this out, send it up to the legislator and pass it. Right. Um, I was able to cite, you know, quote some of uh, Michael's uh, uh, Nesphenology research, making an argument uh, when it when it pertained to some some changes coming up here uh, that they're looking to do as it pertains to fanning, uh, reefing and then the take of two birds at once. And I was just like, well, let me prevent let me drop some knowledge on you. And, you know, (laughs) I if I had never gone to this or knew knew of the stuff that came out of it, I wouldn't know. You only know what you know. I wouldn't known to go and found found that that Nesphenology uh, uh, research project and to be able to take from it and, and provide stats from it. I mean, that was yeah. that was extremely valuable. And it just it makes us better being able to yeah, have and, it and not just shoot from the hip. Yeah. And I'll draw I'll tell you what, I'll drop something in here for all the uh, all the listeners. Um, Mike Chamberlain, a colleague of mine at the University of Georgia, a good friend. And he and I have been working on turkeys, I don't know, uh, jointly. Uh, I, I've attached at the hip probably for the last 12 to 15 years. He has just uh, uploaded himself a new website um, called uh, it's like Wild Turkey Lab. Um, and you can Google it. Uh, and uh He's posting all of at least our, for now, at least our science that he and I do together on it so that folks can go to the website. There's a little uh, little two-paragraph, paragraph synopsis on what the particular research paper was about or or whatnot, because research papers are what we write, correct? I mean, you know, uh, there'll be a little synopsis, and then you can click on the PDF and it'll open up and you can actually read the science on it. So, and, uh, he, he took the initiative to, to kind of get that, you know, kicked off. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's going to be a phenomenal resource, uh, down the road for the, for the public, as you said, if they want to see information, here it is. Now, right now it's, it's probably just Mike and I, uh, our, and our graduate students work up there, but I would assume that as it expands, You'll start seeing other colleagues and projects that we're engaged with and all of their research papers show up there as well as I don't know that it'll be a one stop shop, but it'll be about as close to a one stop shop for up the date turkey yeah. information that I think you can get. So no, that's really great. That's that's phenomenal. And and again, it's you know, if you're sitting there wasting an hour, you know, rabbit hole in TikTok or Instagram, man, go go rabbit hole this for an hour and, and get something out of it. You know, absolutely. Some, and we're trying to keep in. it. Yeah. And he posts all his Turkey Tuesdays that he puts up yeah. up there and little research notes and, you know, all that kind of jazz. And, you know, um, but it, it'll be a good, really good resource for that cutting edge stuff. That's so. awesome. 
man. Well, an hour plus has come and gone by. No, sorry you, no it's all good, brother. I mean, I, I, I can talk to you for days about this stuff. <laughs> uh, that is not uh, conjecture at all. I wanted before we jump, if you, if you don't mind, uh, we, we kind of skipped over the spur part, but I didn't want to provide the mm-hmm. audience with your thoughts on spurs. And again, assuming the audience is listening for the first time and they've got their first license uh, ever and their first time turkey hunters, you know, spurs, where do they come from? How are they created and why so many sometimes or why if I shoot what looks to be a beautiful bird with a big giant paintbrush of a beard and he's got no spurs? How does that work out? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you, you get into spurs being the the another part of the trophy aspect mm-hmm. of, you know, that's kind of what we we, we want to see when we hunt, you know. Um, so spurs are basically two parts. You know, you've got a, a bone. Uh, for the first time turkey under, you got bone underneath that's that's wrapped um, on top with a kind of a fingernail-esque type of material that grows out. And uh, they they grow pretty long sometimes. Uh, they're pretty short sometimes. Normally, your juvenile males, uh, your jakes, will have nubs. Um, they'll be quarter inch uh, during their first, uh, you know, kind of first spring, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, they can get out to maybe a half inch. Um, normally when you get to, uh, your two-year-olds, which is the vast majority of birds that get harvested in the United States are two years old. Um, I can't give you a hard number, but I'd say it's probably well over 70%. Um, you know, then you're going to basically have spurs that fall anywhere between, I don't know, seven eighths of an inch and an inch and a half. And, and some grow fast. And some grow slow and some grow straight and some grow in hooks. Um, obviously, they're the <laughs> I have a weird theory on spurs, and I can't remember who told me or who who I talked to this with us about, but everybody always thinks that spurs are for fighting, which they are, right? But I've also wondered if spurs provide uh support during copulatory activities because of the way the male has to lean back. Yeah. And the spurs provide an anchor point. Yeah. Based on whenever they they lean back for the coequal kiss, um, but uh, spurs tend to differ uh, in size based on which subspecies that you're shooting. Uh, mm. Generally speaking, and this is big paintbrush, nobody yell at me. Generally speaking, um, I think I think the order goes: um, Osceola and Easterns generally have the largest spurs, followed by Rios, followed by Merriams. And then goulds tend to whack somewhere around the Merriam's Rio range. Um, you'll generally see longer spurs in your birds in the east and in the south than you do up north. Um, spurs can't freeze off. Uh, you know, they they can break. Mm. Um, they're not a really good indicator of age past juvenile and adult. Um, you know, you can't look at a spur and think that, okay, it, it grew a third of an inch year one, a third of an inch year two, and a third of an inch year three. This has got an inch spur, so it's a three-year-old. That's not how it works. There's a lot of variability within individuals. Um, you know, but uh, if you're fortunate enough to harvest a bird with a spur, you should be proud of it because every bird's a trophy. Yeah, so indeed. And then even did, did I hit everything? I think so. And I, I think you yeah. speak to the regions, right? So like you know, I think of um, birds on Ho- in Hawaii, right, walking around mm-hmm. all that volcanic rock and even to an extent the, the Rocky Mountainous areas of the West and mm-hmm. stuff. Birds tend to have worn down spurs just by virtue of the terrain they're in. And is that typical? Uh, it seems to be the, the, the reasonable thing that people say. 
Well, yeah, but those birds that are out there are also the species that don't have the longest spurs, right? If we're talking about Hawaii, you're probably talking about Rios and maybe some Merriams yep. out there. I think maybe Rios uh, was Hawaii. Um, and then if you're talking mountains, you're talking Merriams. Yeah. Um, but if you also get, you have to think about where spurs are on the back of the leg, right? The bird's not walking on that. The only tie, way it would get damaged would be if the bird happened to slide mm-hmm. um, or, you know, which is pretty uncommon. So I don't think you're going to... I don't think where you see is like them rubbing on a rock. I think that it's day to day where now I could be, there are certainly going to be scenarios where a spur gets broken or something like that. And a bird gets harvested. It obviously looks like where, but I don't think that, you know, it's kind of day to day, like it's wearing down the heel of your shoe sort of thing. Fair enough. They're just not, they're just not located in the right spot. Um, you know, that said, I've, I've, we've caught a few birds that, uh, I swear have worn their spurs down and, and spurs can get worn. So we've done some studies where, um, we put leg bands on birds, um, and the leg bands will actually cut into the spurs over time. Wow. They're just spinning around on the legs. Um, and that's, just, that's the price you pay, right? Um, they'll, they'll, they'll wear down into the spurs. I've never seen a spur completely cut off mm. by a leg band. I'm sure it exists. Right. Um, but I do know that they will, you know, if you when you put leg bands on them, the spur the leg bands will spin and they will wear down into the spurs and uh, uh, cut notches, so to speak. Um, multiple spurs, I don't know, I got no idea. I, I mean, it is some sort of growth because I just remembered you asked that. There's some some sort of reason that there are multiple spurs, and for the most part, the secondary spur is always below the primary spur. Mm. You know. Generally speaking, you don't you don't see them above it. It's almost always below it. Yeah. Um. I can't think of a time I've seen one above it. I'm sure it happens, uh, but but you know I wonder if they're just a, a calcified outgrowth that you know the the because the, they're always connected, right? They don't ever they're, they're never there's very rarely I guess I should say is because never is not a scientific word. Is there a lot of separation between them? Right. right. There's not a spur here and then another one way down beneath. Right. It, you know. They're usually right on top of each other, yeah, yeah. Um, or right next to each other. So, um, I, you know, I, I wonder if it's just some sort of a residual calcified growth that comes out. It gets covered as well. Hmm. So, certainly, um, yeah. But, but you know, and again, it falls underneath the neat, but probably not having an impact box. Yeah. So, I think the big takeaway from that <clears throat> that conversation on spurs is is your your thoughts on on the breeding and being successful with it. I didn't actually never considered it until this moment and it seems to make a whole lot of sense i cannot remember who i talked to about it and maybe they'll listen to this but it was a student years and years and years ago and these birds have to balance right i mean for for male and female turkeys to breed they basically have to they have to touch cloaca right i mean and you know the female's on the ground the male's standing on top of her and then feathers got to get out of the way and people got to stop watching. And, you know, they got to, <laughs> he's got to lean back and all of that stuff. And, and, you know, it seems like they would provide a, a pivot point to yeah. where he could anchor and not fall. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, it, it's, I've watched an awful lot of turkeys yeah. breed in the woods <laughs> and, and I've never got close enough to just part the feathers yeah. and look. Um, but you know, we don't, I mean, very rarely, I mean, most, most turkeys in captive situations are, you know, AI, right? I mean, that's, that's how they're getting bred because the males are physically unable to do the breeding. Mm. And I wonder if that's just one of those weird little underlying characteristics we don't think about that helps 
males breed. They seem like incredibly and, inefficient breeders the way they're designed. Like I'm, I'm often, you know, again, anecdotally speaking from outside of a, <clears throat> a scientific standpoint, just my hunter observations is like when i see it happening i'm like it's amazing talk about your breeding no not me the turkey (laughs) (laughs) that's a conversation for uh not this program uh um it's it's wild to me that you know there's so many things that go into a successful recruitment of turkeys and just from this conception it's amazing that it even happens yes because it's the most awkward looking uh coupling of two critters and it's like i can't believe that that worked because it doesn't yeah, look no, like it's it, working at all. It doesn't. And it's it's almost as if the entire process, because the 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 actual process of copulation does not take very long. Yeah. Most of it is preparatory it to try and get in the right position yeah. and balance yeah. to 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 make it happen. And um maybe maybe spurs help. Interesting. Uh, Again, mean, there's you just made another doctor out of some future scientist with his master's down the line. Hopefully, I, I hope so. I hope so. That's you what's know. neat about oh. these conversations, and 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 in this space specifically, is that there still remains so much unknown. Like you could, someone if they were had the wherewithal, could make a career out of it. Get the funding and start studying it, man. Because nerds out here want to know. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. If, if we could figure out what makes beards grow. Mm. And how to grow. I mean, I hate to say this, but I'm I'm really glad we're not the deer world and we're we're trying to figure out how much we got to feed the female yeah. on the 39th day, the 39 days before she has that baby so that she, that baby can grow an extra inch of horn at Holy six smokes. and a half years old. I mean, could you imagine trying to do that with no. turkey, you know, with turkey beards? I'm I'm really glad we're not the deer folks right now. Ruin it. But if we could figure out if these oddities have any or i shouldn't say any if we can figure out these oddities have a more important role than we have previously understood in turkeys that would be a really neat kind of focus for a a graduate student to just poke around on and and see what we could come up with because we don't know in some cases and it would be it might be fun yeah. And even with the, you know, getting back to the dominance line of questioning, like if there was something that you could bear out and prove time and time again, that a bird with these features and these characteristics is your guy getting it done. And oh, by the way, only 20 percent of the hens are actually successful after all that has happened. Like, don't shoot that guy. He's making it happen. Captain, leave him alone. I think it was I think it was Buckles uh, in Mississippi that that did a bunch of measurements of snoots. Mm. Um, which uh, I want to say it was in the nineties. It was good. It was good stuff. Um, and, and found that the the males with snoods that were longer were behaviorally more dominant than you know the the other ones. But I don't I don't understand how one would do those measurements because you know a snood can go from be retracted, right. you know, to being a half inch long, to being fully elongated, hanging down, you right. know, below the lower man, below the lower beak, right? The mandible there. Um, so I, I don't know at what point you measure it right. and everything, but there was some, there's some neat stuff that has been done on that. And, and I think that, you know, as science advances and whatnot, we're going to continue to, you know, kind of peel back some of these nuances, so to speak. Yeah. And and I think understanding some of these little odd things is going to be fun. I love so. it, man. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Before we jump, uh, I did want to give an opportunity for an update on the program. 
uh, you head up and that is, you know, with your students and taking them out of field for the first time, you're creating the scientists and the professionals for tomorrow. But you're also creating hunters and giving them experience to to tie it all together. <laughs> Last time you were on the program, we, we talked about it with your partner. Uh, I just saw this morning you guys had um, <clears throat> so there was a post about a deer hunt. So some successful hunts last fall, but how are, how are things yeah. progressing and plans for this, this spring? Yeah, actually, no, it's great. Uh, the, the, the post this morning was actually, uh, our friend James, uh, Pinsky did a article on outdoor life awesome. on the program. And I, I posted about the, the outdoor life article today that he had written for us, um, or about us, I, I shouldn't say for us about us. And, uh, um, for for those of you listening, uh, you know, obviously I'm a professor at LSU and, and I study turkeys, but my my other uh, I don't want to say job, but the other activity that I enjoy is uh, I run or co-direct a uh, collegiate new hunter program there at LSU. And we do uh, we take people who have never been hunting before hunting and awesome. we we take them all. I mean, we take them all the way through it from kids who have never held a firearm before and never had hunter education or anything like that uh, through the whole process. Um, starting out at ground level zero, this is what the North American model of wildlife conservation is. You hunter education, we take them out, we do shooting sports with them. Um, and uh, then we have uh, set up a system where we've got uh, quite a few very, uh, very supportive sponsors that help us outfit these kids. Uh, uh, Nomad Outdoors is one, and they've been uh, the huge NWTF supporter, but have been a, a longtime supporter of our program, getting us T-shirts and that. Uh, you know, Barnett Crossbows is providing gear, Dallas Safari Club, and Benelli Firearms, and then we work with Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, some folks with QD with Nestor. I said QDMA, National Deer Association, yeah. and local chapters, and and we take these uh, students and we tell them that if you uh, if you go through Hunter's Ed and all the shooting sports training and safety training with us, we'll take you hunting. And uh, we do. Uh, Kevin Ringelman, who's a, a waterfowl professor, and I do. I don't know. It varies, but somewhere between sixty and hundred hunts a year wow. uh, with with college students and. You know, pre historically, we've been very much kind of nestled in the college bag, which is the college that my school falls in. But we had some really exciting ones this year. We had students come from uh, computer science because they heard about the program, mm. English, psychology. We had a, a set of sisters. Um, one is a chemical engineering student, and the other one is a PhD student in physics at Tulane down in New Orleans. That's awesome. And they came and went on their first hunt because they heard about the program through a friend of theirs. Um, and it's really great because it provides us an opportunity to train as we're training the next generation of conservationists, which is what it was originally about, but as we're training the next generation of students in whatever field, yeah. we're introducing them to hunting and and hunting as a, as a conservation tool and hunting as a management tool and hunting as a recreational opportunity and by getting that information out there it it benefits all of us in the hunting community yeah, and sure. you know out, we just had a very nice article that uh, was run by Outdoor Life which is I think where what you were referencing and uh, talking about the kind of history and the standing of the program and it's been a real it's it's outside duty as like I like to tell my wife this is outside duties that get me paid, <laughs> but you know when you think about legacy and impact, it's huge. The, the the impact for taking a kid on their first hunt is something they're going to remember for the rest of their life. No matter where they're at, they're a hunter now. Yep. They have went hunting with us and they've harvested, uh, taken a public resource 
and turned it into pro, you know, put it into private possession and ate it. Yeah. Because we cook for cook what they eat and everything. And, and by doing that, we're just building this stronger, you know, community. And I mean, college is where you should experiment with stuff, right? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, so, so it's been a great program and we're continuing on with it. And we've got some exciting things coming up with some additional sponsorship opportunities where folks are going to be able to help us take more students out. Um, which is great. So oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I suspect the next couple of years are going to be really busy on that front. Uh, especially the the, <clears throat> the folks that are going to go into the wildlife sciences and, and management side of the house. I think there's such a benefit to <clears throat> connecting the dots, not just being a professional sitting behind a desk and analyzing data, but actually going out of field and going through that iteration and going through the mm-hmm. motions of, of harvest and, and, and bringing it home and doing everything because Ultimately, some of those folks are going to be part of, you know, that rulemaking we were talking about earlier and, and influencing yeah. legislation. And, and having been there, done that allows them to make, I think, a bigger picture, well-informed decision when they are implementing rule uh, recommendations and things like that. So. You, you're absolutely right. And, you know, 70 percent, I think, is the rough number right now of the students that come through our program have never hunted mm. in, in a in a, uh, a school in the school of renewable natural resources at LSU, 70 percent. Seven out of 10 have never hunted yet. These are going to be the students that are making the policy decisions right. that impact outdoor related regulate, regulate, you know, recreation for hunting, fishing and all that kind of stuff. So if we can tap into that and provide the hunter viewpoint, and I don't want to say it like that, but provide the opportunity for them to experience it yeah. and see what it's about. They're going to carry that with them the rest of their life when they're making these policy decisions, and they're going to influence people who haven't had that experience. Yeah. So when you have a, that's the, a licensed hunter come to a, a meeting at a fishing game uh, headquarters, you know, during their rulemaking, and, you know, if they've never gone through the motions and someone that's done it for 20 or 30 years is saying, you can't do that because of this, it, at least having gone through it, they now understand that perspective. There's, there's full connectivity there instead yes. of just having this ambiguous middle ground that no one can seem to get over. It's about, it's about training the leaders of wildlife conservation in the future. And it can't just be done in front of a PowerPoint slide in my senior level wildlife management techniques class or in duck biology or anything like that. It's, it's the other side of what we do. You know, I mean, you manage game species for several reasons. And one of them is recreation for sure. I said it, That's it when we talked about the program last time uh, towards the end of last year, I I, I, I didn't want to pump tires too much and overstate it. But I, I'm going to say it again. This is it's life changing. The, the program you guys have and what you're doing uh, has implications that I think you don't even understand yet at this point and will bear major fruit down the line. And I <clears throat> I hope other other organizations, other uh places of education adopt similar you know cut and paste it man if you're hearing this i said it last time you're hearing this program again and this is like oh you guys talked about that six months ago yep contact brett he already said it he'll he'll set you up with the parameters you can implement this if you are in such a position of power to bring this to your school to your higher education please do so because it it, the, the implications the lasting effects of what what you're doing brett and your colleagues it's huge. And these people, these kids are going to spread out as they try to build their resume and bring these ideas to other parts of the country. And it's not just going to be in that LSU area in the Southeast. They're going to move nope. so they can get They're jobs all and, yeah, over the United it's States. Amazing. All over. I got kids all the way from 
Seattle, Washington no. right now to Maine to Florida. So yeah, they're Thank they God. just scatter out. So hundred percent. And then I appreciate you letting me slide it in there at the oh, end. Oh, so. for sure. I appreciate it. It's, it's and it's a great story. Like I said, you know, in, in five to seven years time when there's a good um collection of these stories and some of these kids have already maturated out and then they have established careers it'll be really cool to follow up with some of them see where they're at and then talk about you know what the impact was of that first teal hunt or you know turkey hunt whatever it was mm -hmm. and how that worked and how it's affecting them you know in their their professional well, life it's gonna be very cool yeah no it's cool and the, the beauty of it is is and i'll, I'll end on this because i don't want to keep you too long obviously but i'm sure you got more important things to do the beauty of this program is that we're getting them as college students yeah and not, and I'm all for taking a kid hunting. I got a, an 11 year old and I take her hunting all the time because she's mine, but a, an 11 year old can't drive. 11 year old can't buy a shotgun. 11 year old right. doesn't have a job. 11 year old can't get around. When you did college student hunting, all of a sudden they become a part of that fraternity of hunters. that's already there. I've got pictures on my phone that the students text me. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't know. Uh, Will and Tatum, we're out squirrel hunting and uh, I can't remember three or four of the girls that had just went hunting waterfowl the first time went with them. Awesome. And said, so we want, we're going to go squirrel hunting and they were sending me pictures of them out squirrel hunting, you know, and the beauty of this is that when we get them at this age, um, yeah, it's not take a kid hunting, but our recruitment rates about 65%, meaning those students that go through the program, six out of every 10 of them are still hunting five years out. That's good. That's a huge number for us. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of fun. And plus, you know, I get to take a bunch of people hunting in the fall, which is always fun, too. Nothing wrong with that. Right. It's a pleasure, as always. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, we will do it again very soon. Absolutely. Thanks, All right, brother. That was a fun one. It, it, it always is uh, with Brett. I, I appreciate his... Um, his candor and his presentation, right? I mean, the, the information he presents always is, is great. It's interesting. Um, but it's, it's in such a way that, uh, you know, everybody can, can log on, listen to this, this podcast and, and understand what he's talking about. It's not, um, you know, super high up in the clouds just for a, a certain crowd to, uh, to understand and, and be able to interpret. Right. So always a pleasure having, Brad. I, I love the conversation always learning um and, and just some some cool things to to find out and and you know what you what you take away from that conversation is there's things we still don't know uh, we're trying to know and that a lot of the stuff we value is just superficial um as of right now right that's that's the key phrase right now at this point in time in 2023 the things us turkey hunters value are are, are simply um uh, our aesthetic value, what we, what we place value on, right? I mean, cripes, you guys have heard me talk about it before. Uh, we come up with these crazy scoring systems to, to come up with a way to, um, value our harvests, right? You know, whether it's antlers or horns or skull size and, and you know, with turkeys, you know, we, we got to add up all the bits and pieces to get to some number, you know, and that's fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, um, I like his his approach. You know, it's what does it do for the turkey? What does it do for turkey population survivability of those turkeys? Does it provide some sort of um, evolutionary function? And right now, of all those um, those features, you know, uh, it seems like spurs may 
aside from fighting, serve some some purpose as far as turkey recruitment goes? And you heard the doc say, you know, maybe. And it's, it's just it's seems like just a hypothesis at this point. Um, maybe those spurs serve a balancing uh, purpose and a way to to ensure that they're able to uh, to do the things turkey do uh, during the spring. And that's make more turkeys. Right. So certainly interesting. Uh, and again, I, uh, I always appreciate the conversation. So thanks so much to Brett for coming on the program and, uh, and, and, and having some, some fun conversation around, uh, you know, really interesting stuff with, with turkeys. Um, spring seasons are kicking off. Make sure you're following along socially to, uh, all the platforms, uh, the NWTF has Facebook, Instagram, uh, right now, TikTok. We'll see what happens in the future. Uh, professional sites like LinkedIn uh, and Twitter as well. Active there. Follow along. Send your stuff in. And maybe you'll get featured. Maybe your story will get featured. Just dropped a bunch of kiddos with some really cool, again, freak, freak turkeys. Uh, one, I think one young man had six, six spurs on one bird. That's a heck of a first bird and uh, just a lot of cool stuff. So uh, be part of the story. It's your flock. It's your membership. Uh, engage, engage socially and, and be a part of that. We'd love to uh, as much as we can tell your stories or at least share uh, part of your stories as well. Uh, if banquets are happening in your neck of the woods, be sure you're uh, getting engaged locally. That's how this all works. Um, we've got some with our 50th anniversary, some great membership goals, uh, getting very close to to hopefully uh, hitting those those finish line, those goals uh, and then maybe beyond. Right. So um, it's a it's a great time uh, with the NWTF flock to be a member, uh, bring somebody new to a banquet near you, sign them up, get closer to those those big goals uh, the organization has. So before we go here, guys, I want to give you an update on uh, yours truly here. Uh, this is going to be my last episode. As your host for the Turkey Call All Access podcast, uh, my uh, my journey is taking me elsewhere. Uh, I will still be uh, fighting and advocating on behalf of the wild turkey conservation issues, but I'll be doing it in a bigger a bigger role and and not so species specific. So, though my my journey takes me. Away from from my uh, my family at NWTF, I uh, I have a new opportunity, and um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be moving on. So I just wanted to thank this audience, you know, uh, since 2017 with the Strut Zone, and and you know that that little project that that started to build and and really you know allow the story of the NWTF and its membership and its partners and its friends to be told. Um, and then the resurrection of it uh, with the Turkey Call All Access podcast. Uh, it's been great. Uh, it's been fantastic to bring it to convention and make a feature out of it and allow everybody, you know, that's there, the, the Gaylord to come by and say hi to, to guests and, and have those face to face interactions and, 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 and bring those stories to you. So, you know, in the end, thank you. Thank you all. Uh, I'm fortunate to have had this opportunity, like I said, going back to 2017, setting that up as a as a regional director in the New England states and then, you know, making it more of a a, a prime time feature. So uh, and you guys made make that work, made it work, make it work. Um, and I encourage you to stay on. Um, keep following, keep sharing this program out, what, whatever form it takes and, and looks like. 
but uh, it's been a great pleasure and um, take care of yourselves. I hope your seasons are going well as they open up. Your youth seasons are kicking off. Be safe. Take care of each other. Get home safe. No bird is worth uh, getting in trouble with the law or putting yourself in an unsafe situation. So, you know, the end of the day, it's it, this is for fun. Um, it is it is our lifestyle. But, you know, in, in order to live a lifestyle, you got to be alive and, <laughs> and well. So uh, with that, be safe out there. Take care of each other. Check in with your loved ones. Make sure if they're not back at uh, home in time, uh, see if you can do that. Find a phone or, or call somebody. Always have a plan when you're heading out, even turkey hunting. It doesn't have to be some backcountry elk hunt or mountain goat hunt. Uh, simple, simple turkey hunt can uh, can get you mixed mixed up in some stuff pretty quick. Um, you know, we we talked about before. You know, simply not being in shape, um, and and people dropping of heart attacks in the middle of a turkey field. So, yeah, you never know. And we want the best for everybody out there. So stay safe. Have a plan. Have redundancies in your your turkey hunt so people know where you're at, where you're intended to go, and uh, get home safe. And 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 hopefully you're able to fill a tag, maybe an extra tag, and uh, your spring is uh, is all good. Until next time, guys. That's it. Take care of each other. Love each other. Be kind. See ya. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. Nomad is proud to be a supporting sponsor of the National Wild Turkey Federation and their podcast hosted by my longtime buddy, Fred Bird. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation.